Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Hey, Tim. Hey, Tim. Hi. Hey, Tim. Hey, Matt. Hey, David. Hey, Matt. How are y'all doing? Good, good. I'm going to talk a little bit. First of all, you looked at the I am statements and the, the story of Nicodemus. What we're doing in a twofold way, you know, what's the problem with the Jews? What's the problem with Nicodemus? And then the various I am statements. And a, a way of thinking of this is the two sorts of ontologies that is taking place, you know, obviously with the I am statement. But if we had to describe the ontology of the darkness, but a way that I want to come at it, it may seem indirect at first. You know, when John the Baptist sees Jesus coming, he says, here is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Is there anything unusual that strikes you in that statement? Yeah, lambs don't take away sin. It's the blood of bulls and goats that does. Exactly, exactly. I just assume that John is either John the Baptist or John the Apostle or both. They're describing a theology in this statement. And I think contained within the statement is an understanding of the way that atonement, and atonement, I think, is the correct word, the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, how that is functioning in John. In other words, if we're uh, describing what the darkness is and then how is the darkness overcome, it is in that statement. But also then the other thing that we're dealing with, and I think that we can put together, is that we are connecting the logos. We said we're not talking about a pre-incarnate logos, but that we're connecting the logos to the ego me or to the tetragrammaton. And that's obvious in the Targums that they literally do that. Uh, and so the Logos is not this pre-incarnate thing, but if we had this, if we're connecting it to the I am statements, you know, that I am the light, I am the bread of life, he calms the waves, that uh, the light shining in the darkness. The darkness of death is most clearly the point from which the light shines. That's the glory. You know, we talked about this last time. The hour is building up to the cross. One of the ways that we can talk about the darkness is that people are caught up in, in what, you know, is it Charles Taylor that talks about an imminent frame? But of course, that's a very biblical idea that, you know, whether it's Rome or it's Israel, the, the idea is that that is absolutized, that being Jewish is an absolute or being Roman is an absolute. This is kind of our discussion in the class on sin and salvation, that what the characteristic problem of the Jews is, that they would reify the law or they would reify their Jewishness. This is a universal problem, I believe, that's illustrated to us with the Jews. This is what we all do in some way, nationalism, tribalism, 
identity as in, you know, we would reify the law in one form or another. And of course, the idea, the whole point of Israel is that they are clearly a people that their substance is not in their Jewishness. Abraham is not a Jew, but their substance is in promises from God, and that's just true of all of us. And so the I am, I think, clashes with this understanding that there is an ontological clash here. But I would, I would say that in John, in fact, there's not a lot of ontological weight given to the power of evil and sin. Now, that may sound strange, and what I mean by ontological weight, uh, that I think the phrase, you know, here is the, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that the thing that is missing in that phrase, you know, the thing that is taken out, if we went back to Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, it is the Azazel goat. And the Azazel goat is the one that the sins are laid upon and is sent into the wilderness. And so that sin is almost treated like a, a thing, an object. And, you know, Aaron, that there's the two goats, the Yahweh goat and then the Azazel goat. And that's what's missing in that phrase with John. There's just the lamb, and then there's the taking away the sin of the world. And I think that's an insight then to what how John considers the problem of sin. In the book, you know, we see clearly that it could be gotten rid of. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Yes, it is a metaphorical cleansing, but of course, that's the whole picture of the Yahweh goat, that here is the, a kind of ritual detergent, and what it's cleansing, you know, what is being cleansed from the temple is death, and what cleanses death is life. Uh, and so the way that you have life in the book of John is through Christ, through belief, you know, the famous John 3.16, is a depiction, I think, of the theology of John, that belief and love counteract the problem, and disbelief is then connected to the problem. And so I am provides living water, he provides manna from heaven, he calms the storm, he brings he healing. If we had to say what evil is in John, how would you identify evil, or what is the, what's the great sin in, in John? Is it unbelief? It's certainly unbelief that unbelief. Or, or denying that Jesus came in the flesh. I'm thinking of the. Yeah, that's first John. That any man that says that Christ has not come in the flesh is of the Antichrist. Yeah, and, and in a way, I think John is already, even though it's not there in the gospel, I think that John is doing two things that there is an affirmation, sure, you know, the Son of God and the Son of Man phrases brings together the deity and the humanity of Christ. And that's true of the theology in John. We see the humanity of Christ. He thirsts. He's tired. You know, the, that we see more of the humanity, the profound friendships he has with Mary and Martha. But if, if I had to identify as the very sin, it is the handing over. In other words, what is the sin of Judas? What is the thing that Christ is cleansing them of, of at the, uh, the foot washing? It is that Judas would hand him over, but of course, they're all implicated in the handing over. It seems like at that scene at the foot washing, all the uh, apostles are implicated. They all turn to one another and say, oh, is it me? And then throughout the book, then every character, you know, everybody that comes along, beginning with Judas, uh, that the Jews hand him over, 
pilot hands him over, Herod hands him over. Everybody that comes in, into contact with Jesus hands him over. And so they all share in the sin of the handing over, which is a kind of passive relinquishment, uh, you know, the kind of betrayal. And I think that we may make a mistake uh, in demonizing Judas, because I think the whole point is that actually this is the very sin that he's addressing. That we're all, you know, and, and it sort of went down the line. Every one of them suffered the uh, the heart of it, the sin that, that Judas committed. And one of the things that you said before that I believe you said this really stuck with me succinctly, said, when we are confronted by Jesus, we have two choices. We either kill him or allow him to kill us. Did you say that? And I, I know that doesn't sound like something you'd say, but but basically, you know, be slain, our wills be slain by his and uh, defeated and given over to him or else we kill him, hand him over. Yeah, that's me. I'm all about violence. Uh, <laughs> well, after I said it, I was like, maybe I didn't hear that from Paul. Uh, yeah, no, I think the idea, the sentiment is there, and that is that the uh, the impl- I think that if we don't see ourselves implicated in the sin of Judas, we may be missing out at the power of the thing that is taking place. You know, people hand him over for different purposes. Peter's, you know, part of this. Uh, and Peter would go down fighting, but of course his fighting is, uh, that, that just plays into the hands of the problem. And so per- partly I want to say two things then about evil. I, I, I'm very orthodox, I think, in my understanding that evil is a privation. The disbelief the, that is a blocking of belief, that darkness is a blocking of light. What if what we're saying that Jesus is doing in the Passover is the resolution to sin, then I think that we're defining evil in a particular way. That is, I think that John is theologically linking the resolution to sin. I mean, isn't it obvious that he's marking time by the Passover when he's, when he's dying, the Passover lambs are slain, and this is the way of removing sin. And so he has that as completing, and then the work of the taking away the sin, the work of the Azazel goat, is just a byproduct of the Passover, or a byproduct, if you will, of the goat of Yahweh. In other words, I think the lamb that has died the, uh, is, is not m- much different than the goat of Yahweh. I think that there is this understanding that evil is not a substantial thing in, in terms of an ontological substance. And of course, the danger is, and this is there in penal substitution, it's clearly there in Calvinism, but actually it's surprisingly there in Karl Barth. And that is that we can take this nothing and we can lend it an ontological weight. And that's ex- precisely what Karl Barth does. I won't go into detail but I think it's valuable to, to understand the error and understanding the error to get the, to get it correct. So this is kind of you know, this is kind of what I'm always that my reading of Romans seven, a Zizakian reading or a Lacanian reading, but I think is true to the Pauline reading. I, I think we can say two things about evil. 
One, I think that, yes, evil is a privation. Two, nonetheless, that the lie of sin is that evil is radical. That is, that I think part of the deception, part of the lie, even about ourselves, about the nature of the world, is that this is substantive. You know, this is the Zizekian, Lacanian picture of the individual. You have to have the lie uh, in order to have a human being because they're atheists and they're, you know, atheistic materialists. And so what is a human being? Well, a human being is that struggle. You know, they're both reading Romans 7 and saying, there's what a human being is. It's someone caught up in this dialectic, in this dualism. In other words, I'm afraid, this is why in Zizek, you can't be a Christian, because if you had resolved the problem of sin, and he, he calls it that too, he has no problem calling it that, uh, actually you would get your writ rid of human beings. There is a, a substantive appearance to evil and sin that we have to take account of. It's there in John. There are several dangers if we don't get what I just said. And that is that in most or many modern interpreters, what they're doing when they link the Day of Atonement, you know, the, the, here's the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, and, not, and first of all, missing and not nuancing that in any fashion, and just running it all together, what comes to dominate that is the Azazel goat and the idea of Christ as a sin bearer. And so they see Christ primarily in terms of a scapegoat. And of course, this not only misses the work of atonement, I think it's also a misreading of the temple, of uh, the meaning of the sacrifices. And I would, say, I would implicate Rene Girard in this too, because Girard is actually guilty of doing the same thing. In other words, Girard doesn't make a distinction between the Jewish temple, the Jewish sacrifices, and pagan sacrifices. But I think rightly understood, if we read that correctly, God is not interested in death. You know, that's not what's happening in the temple. What is taking place is the cleansing of the temple from sin and death. And that is the work that we see in John, especially, that Christ is accomplishing. In penal substitution, the Azazel goat and the evil he bears, I think it's given uh, almost an ontological substance that we end up with, obviously, a violent death of God and penal substitutionary violence on Mount Zion or the or, or kind of scapegoating violence or even a kind of patriarchal abuse in a misreading, I think, of the story, first of all, of the story of Abraham. And so that then leads to a misinterpretation of key passages in the New Testament. And John Stott may be a fine example of this, that John Stott defends substitutionary atonement on the basis of the two goats. But he does what everyone you know that is committed to this usually do. He's attacking those who divide the two goats. He says we can't divide those two goats from each other because in Christ, both things are happening. And so in, uh, to bear sin in the Old Testament, he says, should be taken to mean to endure sin's penal consequences, to undergo its penalty. That is to suffer the penalty of death. The, and the best example, then, he cites Leviticus 16, where the, the picture of the two goats is described. 
And so he does what a lot of people do. He just fuses the two goats. And the only differentiation is that between the one illustrates the nature of the penalty, death, and the other communicates the result of the penalty, the removal of sin, and that both goats are participants in an act of violence, of punishment from God, and this punishment requires divine forgiveness. So I think John is a much more subtle thinker than John stopped. Is that shocking? The way that uh, one writer has put this, Jeffrey Syker, and actually John Bear, I think it's John Bear that references Syker, that he talks about the Yom Kippuring of the Passover. And of course, that's what's happening in this phrase from John the Baptist, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, that John, the, John is reading this from the perspective of the two goats, but reading it into the Passover. I think the Gospel of John does that, that he blurs the distinctions in order to make a larger picture, a lar uh, attach a different significance. This is from Syker. He says, Christians took the other most significant holy day in Jewish tradition, Yom Kippur, and imported its central emphasis on forgiveness of sins into the ritual imagination of Passover. What is the sign of the forgiveness of sins for a Jew or for a Christian? I think it's resurrection. You know, that's there in the book of Acts. That with resurrection, there is the sign that sins have been forgiven. That is, that death has been replaced with life. And so this is what he means, the Yom Kippurring of Passover. Death has passed over, but that's also then connected with the, the forgiveness of sins. Uh, and so I think that's a clear theological move in which death, the death that is passed over, is passed over because life is given to us by God, and this resolves the sin problem, that life shows up in the right place. You know, this is the story, this is the right understanding of the story of Abraham, life in the midst of death, that Abraham's life journey is a one long journey into death acceptance, into the reality that he's as good as dead that Sarah's as good as dead, and what belief means is resurrection faith, to have faith that God can give life in the midst of a situation where life seems impossible. I think Christ as I am, Christ as God, showing up on the cross in the midst of, the de of death, that is precisely John's atonement theory. The word of the cross, the logos, the I am, the tetragrammaton, on the cross is God showing up in the midst of death, and death is that thing. You know, we did this last week with Sheol, with uh, Hades, I think, that that's the thing. You know, Jews almost thought that Sheol was a place that you didn't return from, and that, that once you were in Sheol, it was the kind of dividing point. And I think there are scriptures, you know, there are later scriptures that talk about that. And Matt pointed out, yeah, even God's present in Sheol. But the idea was that death for a Jew is uncleanness. Sheol is the place of the dead. They couldn't connect God with death, the unbridgeable gap, the pit, the thing that I think I may have described, you know, if you had to describe how far God is removed from death, you could compare the two goats. The Yahweh goat, the goat of the Lord, 
goes into the Holy of Holies. The Azazel goat is taken out into Midian or the place that, that is as far from holiness as you get can get, and is I think the significance of it is it's the equivalent of the pit of Sheol. That was point one. The other is that, that this is the way, you know, how do you read the sacrifices? I think we read the sacrifices in the temple. What is Abraham doing? Is Abraham, you know, if God had asked Abraham, Abraham, thou shalt slit thy throat. I don't think Abraham would have been bothered by that at all. Because the life that Abraham is negotiating for himself and Sarah is not, does not reside within him. It resides in the child of promise. There is the one in whom their life resides. There is the one who will make their name great. And so what Abraham is doing on Mount Moriah is not, you know, child sacrifice or it is this picture, I think, of God providing life where there is death. In other words, it is, the picture is that God provides the goat, and that's the picture of Jesus, that in Hebrews, that, you know, in the past, by the blood of bulls and goats, but Jesus has offered his own blood. And blood, of course, is life. But Jesus gives us life where there is death. This is Paul's picture in Romans 4, 19 to 20, that he was as good as dead, she was as good as dead. And so what's taking place in Isaac, I believe, is always taking place ritually in the Jewish sacrifices. Uh, when the priest takes the blood and applies it to the temple furniture, it's the blood of Isaac that is the life given by God that is the life given in Christ, ultimately, that is the antidote to death. That's a very simple picture, but I think that's what's actually taking place. And I think we have to understand that then to understand that Jesus has temple and Jesus has true sacrifice. In other words, this is not a sacrifice on the order of uh, the Azazel goat. The Azazel goat could never be a sacrifice, right? The goat did not qualify as an offering because the offering, the goat that is offered, is spotless. And the goat is bearing sin. The sin-bearing goat can't be sacrificed. And so penal substitution, but all of these theories that just fuse this, uh, I mean, I think it's just a grave misunderstanding. It was never that God desired death, but God provides life and cleanses of death through the life that he gives. And that's the purity laws. You know, they're all about the battle between life and death. Death is a pollution uh, to the presence of God. You know, that's the represented in the Holy of Holies. The bodily impurities need to be cleansed. What, and that every impurity, you know, dead bodies, blood, semen, skin disease, moral rebellion, the thing that they all have in common is death. Life dedicated to God, I think, is the point of the atonement, and not death is the means of access to God. It's the means of participation in God. I think I would ask you to go back to your statements about evil as a privation, and then number two being that the lie of sin is that evil is radical. I, I know that I'm going back a little bit in your logic, but I, I missed some of the importance of that 
and want to want to see how it sort of helps tie in and bolster what you're saying about the the goats and Passover. So if we misread the Azazel goat, as is done in penal substitution, but is do, is done by many people, but clearly uh, in some understandings of why Christ died, we're going to lend an ontological significance to evil. You understand that's what's put on the Azazel goat, all the okay. evil and sin, the murder, the all the sins of Israel. Mm. It's almost like a physical thing, and you Aaron would symbolically put that on the goat, then they'd lead the goat out. And so if we read that into the death of Christ, we're giving an ontological significance to evil that I think is just the lie of sin repeated in Christianity. What okay. is the lie of sin? That evil or that yeah. things are substantive, that, oh, yeah. I'm a Jew, and that's my identity. Yeah. Uh, my Jewishness, you know, this is why Whoopi Goldberg got in trouble. But that's the whole teaching of Christianity, is that Jewishness or Gentileness or maleness or femaleness, these are reified in sin. They're made a kind of identity as if they contain an ontological reality that is in competition with God. Sin is making nothing something. That's it. Bart does this. In a, I, I really didn't realize how, how crude Bart was on this topic, but he's just following, I think, Calvin on this. So just a short thing that I just kind of happened to, to notice in origin on his commentary on John in book two. And I had said, I'd seen this a long, a while ago and I'd mentioned it to, to Paul, but he didn't really seem to make too much about it. But I thought, well, maybe there's something there, you know, but uh, origin is commenting on. Uh, fur I always make something of what you say. <laughs> I remembered it. I thought, Oh, that's good. Oh, okay. I thought you were just like, nah, because because then I started to think, well, maybe I'm like reading that a little bit too literally. And if you look at the Greek, I don't know if, if it's kind of a reach. But anyways, in, in John 1 verse 3, you know, St. John's, he, it's the passage where it says, without him, nothing was made. You know, so he says, all things were made through him and without him, nothing was made. And I said, oh boy, that's interesting. Does St. John meet, want us to think that apart from Christ, nothing was quote-unquote made. Do you understand what's happening there? So that's step one. So then I, I was like reading through uh, Origen's commentary on John, and I said, oh, look, he starts to comment on it. So Origen says, now let us see why this statement, and without him nothing was made, is added. Some may think that it's superfluous to subjoin, without him nothing was made, to all things were made through him, right? Because he's already said, well, all things were made through him, so why would John need to add that without him nothing was made? Right. So Origen's a very careful reader of the scriptures. So he wants to take a look at this. And he says, you know, just what Paul's already been saying, that because evil is unsubstantial, he understands uh, these things to be nothing, he says. He says, so uh, nothing is everything which has received its apparent constitution, neither from God nor through the word. He says, let us, let's see if we can prove these things in a striking manner from the scripture. So he goes through the different ways. You know, he starts with uh, St. Paul in Romans 4. The apostle indeed appears to use the expression, those things that are not, not for the things which exist nowhere, but for things which are wicked, considering those things that are not to be things which are bad. For he says, God called those things that are not as, the, as those that are. Then he goes to Esther and he says, according to the Septuagint, Mordecai calls Israel's enemies those who are not. When he says, Lord, 
do not hand your scepter over to those who are not. We can introduce how the wicked are called those who are not because of evil from the name of God recorded in, in Exodus. Quote, for the Lord said to Moses, he who is, this is my name. So he goes on, he says that, okay, so the one who is good, therefore, uh, is, this, is the one, is the same as the one who is. But evil or wickedness is opposite to the good and not being. So you see his logic here, right? So he, and in, in closing here, he says, he even uses the example of the devil. He says, for insofar as he is the devil, he's not a creation of God. But to the extent that it falls to the devil to be, being made, since there's no creator except our God, he is a creation of God. It's as if we should say also that a murderer is not a creation of God, while we do not annul the fact that qua man, he's been made by God. You see the distinction that he's making there, right? So that for when we assume that qua man, he has received his being from God, we do not also assume that qua murderer, he has been he has received this from God. All therefore who share in being, and the, and the saints do share in it, he says, would properly be called those who are. But those who have turned away from the sharing in being have by depriving themselves of being become those who are not. And then lastly, he just says that all evil is nothing since it too is not being and evil, which is called nothing has been made without the word not being included in the all things. So there really is kind of a nuanced distinction. I think that origin is making. He's saying on the one hand, the word makes all things. But apart from the word, nothing was made. There's evil in the world. You know, we wouldn't properly say, that's why he uses the, the example of the devil, because, okay, there's a devil. So God didn't create him qua devil, right? He still created him. But as much, in as much as he's the devil, he's not really, he, he is, it's like he is not, right? Because he's evil. So there is like a distinction being made here that I think is, is important, right? So whether we want to read that passage there in John 1, 3, Again, I looked at the Greek and it's like, well, I don't know. It's kind of debatable on how you'd want to translate that. But Paul's been doing this thing for a long time, back to his book, where he, he's basically been saying for years that really what sin is, is to make nothing something. And for John, all things that come into being come into being through the word. And apart from the word, nothing is made. So you see, so it's like, well, do we want to take him? That literally there, uh, Origen seems to think it's worth at least investing. Whether we buy Origen's interpretation, I think his sentiment is correct. In other words, this is just the picture of sin that, you know, what is the Tower of Babel? Notice that God doesn't go down and destroy the Tower of Babel. It's nothing, right, in, in terms of the substance that they imagined they could attach to the Tower of Babel that they could storm the heavens through this, this really nice brick tower. That in terms of ontology, the brick tower did not amount to anything. What was substantive that, that is undone, not really substantive, was the lie surrounding language, the unified language. Right. And that's always what's happening. You know, this is nationalism, this is racism, this is sexism, that we always attach and uh, an essence, a substantive essence to race, gender, nationalism. And it's not that those things are inherently evil, but those things given a kind of absoluteness, then they become evil. Because they're made apart from the word. Yeah. Isn't this also a kind of a repeating or a restating a theology of 
idolatry where we are all guilty of attempting all our lives to make something out of nothing, which was God's act and God's act alone to create out of nothing. So the idol producing nature of our our fantasies, I guess, is to take nothing and make it into something. Yeah, that's it. That's it. I think that's it. And that's Hegel. You know, this is that, I mean, that's not Hegel as a Christian. That's Hegel as an idolater. Hmm. But that's what Zizek and Lacan, and that's what I meant, Brian, by radical evil. Yeah. In other words, they're what they are literally saying. Now, I, I think that we have to appreciate some of this because it's almost like these atheistic Marxist materialists have this profound understanding for the way that evil functions. But what they're saying, and people may not notice it, is that the good comes out of the evil. And evil then is the, it's an originary, that's the originary state, you know, the agonistic struggle, the nothing and the something, the dualism. I don't know if you guys have, have read uh, Paul Axton's book, but this is dark stuff because the, what, what Paul is saying in his book is that this is what we do with human personality, that the ego is a construct, that the, the, right, the human subjectivity created apart from the word right? That is, in Paul's language, Paul Axton's language, founded upon a, a lie or a deception. It is this uh, sort of nothing par excellence, right? Because we build it, we construct an entire identity, uh, this is the argument of Paul's book, around a deception. That is that we can found ourselves apart from God. And so the entire ego construct is just that, right? It's making nothing something. It's creating entire identity or a way of being in the world apart from God without reference to the fact that there's a fundamental fantasy there that you can establish yourself, right? So, uh, you know, Paul's just taking that picture from Isaiah, you know, where the idol maker, he fashions the wood, he carves it out, he turns around, he has some breakfast, he turns back and he says, ah, it's a God. This is what Paul Action is saying that we also do if you want to go with him and, and, you know, and, and by what he's saying, I mean, there's gotta be something to it, right? Because he's using Romans seven to say, well, this is just what human personality that we would attempt to create apart from the word, apart from Christ, you know, that, that uh, nothing is, is made quote unquote by us. And that that's what sin is. But to go back, I want to go back to one little phrase. You said that the, the Yom Kippuring of Passover, and is, is that what John is doing somehow by saying the lamp behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world so you've got the fusion of you he's talking about a, the goat actually takes away the sin of the world but the lamb is part of yom yom kippur no part, yeah, part of passover you know the, there's a lot of lambs but we're assuming that because in john he keeps talking about the passover and right after that he talks about the passover Mm-hmm. that we're really talking about the Passover lamb. And of mm-hmm. course, the, the original Passover lamb in Egypt, they put the blood on the doorposts and death passed them over. And then that is then the, the idea that God's life in, you know, wards off death. Mm-hmm. But then the work of that lamb is connected to atone, the atonement or Yom Kippur, which was the two goats. And in the two goats, one is the Yahweh goat, and they take 
the, the goats, we believe, were identical. It actually doesn't say this in the Bible, but we have other traditions that say the goats had to be identical. And they're going to take the, the blood of the Yahweh goat into the Holy of Holies. In other words, this is the key moment. Hmm. And the meanwhile, the Azazel goat, Azazel, you know, just the language here, uh, we're, we're not quite clear, but it, it seems to be connected with the demonic presence and evil taken out into this, you know, the place that it, it's described as, uh, as far from holiness, midden in Leviticus, but it's describing this, in other words, they're going to take the goat and throw it down this cliff. And, yeah, uh, runs it off a cliff, right? Yeah, yeah. And so they're getting it as far away. There's, the goats are going in opposite directions. I remember a gospel story that where they try to do the same thing to Jesus. Throw them off a cliff. That's right. Indeed. And so there is a lot of the imagery, but the, the mistake would be to imagine that what is done to the Azazel goat in John or in the epistles is God doing that. But of course, that's evil that is put upon that goat. That's Aaron, you know, he can he lays his hand on the, a, a, after they do the Yahweh goat, then the uh, Azazel goat, which was at the door of the tabernacle, he lays his hands on it and prays over, you know, confesses all the sins of Israel. And then someone leads the goat. Origen, by the way, believes that that's a symbol of Jesus, but I don't know that, you know, that not the goat, but the guy leading the goat out into the wilderness. In other words, the, the main work of atonement is the Yahweh goat. And the Yahweh goat is all joy and life and cleansing. It's a kind of ritual detergent. And what is being cleansed from the temple and all of its environs is sin and death. That is all, play, you know, we're cleansing it out and we're putting it on this goat and sending it into oblivion. And so what gets confused is that people take the main act of atonement as the work of the Azazel goat. But the Azazel goat actually has nothing to do with sacrifice, right? You don't sacrifice the Azazel goat. You, you sacrifice the Yahweh goat. And, and we have to get the, the meaning of sacrifice correct. You know, we always think, oh, they, that God loves dead things. No, that, that's not the point. The point is that life is in the blood, and this blood is a ritual detergent showing what, you know, the, the temple, everybody understands, is a microcosmos. Here's the world that's represented. What Christ is doing, then, is obviously the Yahweh goat thing, but I think the Azazel goat work is accomplished in the work of the Yahweh goat. That is, that here is the means that it's, or that's what I think John the Baptist or what John, you know, both are saying. Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How does he take away the sin of the world? By doing the work of displacing death, in, like in Passover. It's not by bringing death, it's by bringing life. I am right. the life. That's the mean, you know, what is the death of Christ? In other words, we're, the danger is not just that we'll misread the death and that's the way the death of Christ has been misread. People have said, oh, Christ is the Azazel goat on the cross. But of course, the, the picture is that Christ is the one who displaces death. You know, this is why the cross is a scandal for the Jews, 
because death is completely separate from God, but Christ shows up where death seems to reign. He bridges that gap. And so the cross is the pinnacle of glory for the same reason it's a scandal to the Jews. It's a shining forth of life, of incorruptible life in God's presence in the place of final corruption. There's nothing worse than a cross for Jews. It's to be accursed, or for Romans. At the most corruptible and most contemptible of moments, the incorruption, the life of God shines forth in that place of death that is thought to have been closed off. You understand what through always happening throughout John, you know, the angels ascending and descending, but here is the Son of Man. Here is the Son of God. Heaven and earth are being brought together. The gap is closed. Heaven has come to earth in Christ. And so this is why the hour of glory is, you know, here's the hour of full revelation, the hour for which Christ came. It's assigned to the cross, because I think in the cross, the incarnation is complete. That's the way Jesus describes it. He says it's like, I think, I, uh, it's like a woman in labor in John 16, 21 to 22. Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come, but when she gives birth to the sh child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. He's saying, I'm going away, I'm going to die. This, But he says, it's like a birth. Therefore, you too have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one will take your joy away from you. There is no corruption in this place. And I think, you know, this fits the overall theology of John. It's not focused on the negative weight of the power of sin, but on the, the overcoming, the positive overcoming of sin with life. And I think that's in there in Jesus' own description. And I think that's the picture throughout of the Passover. That Passover is it is a reference to the picture of Abraham uh, sacrificing Isaac. Abraham placed the wood upon Isaac. Jesus carries for himself the wood upon which he will die. This is a I'm lo looking at Bear here. They may not have understood that Isaac voluntarily was going to sacrifice himself, though that that's there in the Book of Jubilees indicates the sacrifice of Isaac was a, you know, a, a volunteer sort of thing. But there is the, at the original uh, basis for the Feast of Passover, it describes the sacrifice of Isaac as having taken place on the 14th of the first month, and mentions that it was thereafter celebrated annually as a week-long festival known as the Feast of the Lord. And so as such, the place of the temple changes from the Temple Mount to the place of the school, the new Moriah. That is, what's taking place in the Holy of Holies is what's taking place on Moriah, is what's taking place on the cross, that there is a continuum uh, between the three, and that the imagery in John is connected. You know, we eat the flesh of the, the lamb, uh, it was to be consumed entirely, and that's John describes, you know, take my body, he doesn't speak of Christ laying down his life on account of sin, but in 61, but rather for the life of the world. 
we're given the heavenly bread, his flesh to eat, like the Passover lamb. He lays down his life for the sheep, for the nation and the children of God, 11, 50 to 52. He lays down his life, you know, no greater love than as a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That is the act that he is loved by the Father in 1017, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. So it's exactly in this way that God has shown his love. God so loved the world. This is the meaning of that key verse. He gave his son. What does it mean he gave his son? That he would give life in place of death. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. It's all about life. It's not about death. It's about displacing death on the cross. In other words, it's very easy to flip all this around and make of Christianity. I mean, it's not the Jewish, the Jewish religion never believed the Azazel goat was a sacrifice or, you know, so, but it's, but strangely, we, we can make Christianity exactly the opposite, I think, of what it is, what is being portrayed. I like what you hinted at, and I don't know if you finished the thought that Origen seemed to believe that Jesus was the one who led the Azazel goat. To me, that gives a picture of something that I haven't seen before because I, I get the I got the PSA all my life. But to think that in, in whatever way Jesus took away sin, you know, by nailing the the law to the tree, whatever he he eliminated the, the problem of sin, and so then that allowed him to deal with with life, with cleansing, with with making us all that we were meant to be. So I, I like I w- I would love to read it if you can, you know point to that where origin talks about that that that's a very different imagery yeah yeah he and he's as always uh, matt has given me great appreciation for origin he's kind of the genius of the early church he becomes very trust very trustworthy guide uh when you see the kinds of errors that people can fall into i think this has something to do with the harrowing of hell you know first of all hell is not gehenna in this instance, it's Hades or Sheol or the place of the dead. You know, this is Ephesians, that he ascended, that he might descend, that he fills all in all. There is no nothing. There is no empty place. There is no place of the dead. Christ has emptied out the category. At least that's my understanding of what that means. That's the first Peter passage, I think. But here is this good news preached in Sheol. If there were a dumping ground, if there were a place to take sin, if there were an abyss, it would have been Sheol, what, you know, in Greek is Hades. None of this has anything to do with Gehenna. The the place of the dead is the the idea of an Old Testament concept. So Christ's life-giving death on the cross is not understood by John as a response to sin, but rather as principally deriving from the love that God himself is. You know, this is, again, as Eastern Orthodoxy, this is origin, that Christ would have come, that was always God's plan, that here is God's plan for the world, the love that God has for the world, John 3.16. It is precisely this love shown in this way that has liberated human beings from being slaves, John 15.15. We've now become members of the household of God. 
enthroned in the temple as sons. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And this is the phrase, you know, in the conversation with Nicodemus. Uh, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. And then the, you know, the John 3.16 passage. And so Jesus sees his death as a cure to the poison, or he sees a cure of the staff, and it's a reference to the, the crucifixion. And so I would say his death contains in John nothing other than the love on God's side. In other words, there's no anger of God, but there, there's a lot of anger of men, and that's the statement here in this passage. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. Uh, There's no judgment in his death, but only a prejudgment on people and how they respond. And so there here is the source of life. And this is, I think, all connected. If we get the temple sacrifices right, then we can understand, you know, in John, the central role of Jesus being the true temple. Lightheart notes that we we have to recognize that in John, that Jesus is like a new Moses, I'm quoting here, assembling and furnishing the new tabernacle that he is, and doing so as a tour of the tabernacle by moving from the outer courts to the holy place, so that by the time we arrive at the crucifixion, we're in the inner sanctuary, the most holy place. We are given a spring of living water, resembling the bronze laver between the door of the tabernacle and the altar, the heavenly bread, the manna which was kept in a jar, the bread of presence lying on the golden altar, the light of the world as the golden lampstand, Jesus himself offering prayer for his disciples to the Father as the priest before the altar. Lightheart uses the imagery here. At the end of John's gospel, the glory of God is announced in the prologue, but then in the end, broken and bleeding Jesus, crucified is Yahweh enthroned on the ark. He's thinking here of the ark of the covenant, hanging between two criminals who serve as cherubic throne guardians. Later, the empty tomb will replicate the tableau of the the cross, you know, the two angels seen on the head and the, the foot where Christ had laid at either end of the stone. Christ and tomb are shocking places for divine glory to be revealed, scandalous, macabre arcs, the polar opposite of holy spaces. You know, my question last week, can God dwell in Sheol? Here is the holy of holies in a tomb. For John, they constitute the inner sanctuary where the glory of God is most fully displayed in the mangled flesh of the crucified word, in the emptiness of the tomb of the risen Lord. That is where glory shines. The one hanging on the new ark is the word made flesh. The cross reveals the glory of God because it elevates the image of God to Yahweh's throne above the cherubim. In Jesus, Israel finally enters behind the veil into the most holy place. God takes his throne where he shares it with the God-man. I thought that was a beautiful picture. And that, Paul, where was that from? 
This is, well, uh, uh, I'm actually quoting John Bear, and Bear is quoting Lightheart. And this is Lightheart's, do you know, Matt, if he does a commentary on John? He, he does a commentary on Revelations that refers back to John and incorporates John in it a lot, which may be and, where he's getting it. Yeah, and Matt has a brilliant section from Lightheart that he's going to bring. Can I ask which Lightheart this is? Not Peter. It actually is. Peter. Oh, it is, it is Peter Lightheart. Okay. You don't like Peter? No, I didn't. No, no, no. I just didn't. I didn't know. <laughs> uh, see, I, this stuff was brilliant, I thought. I, if it's the same Lightheart, he's written the one on uh, Constantinianism. I have the book. I can't claim to have read it. I kind of looked at it on my shelf. Because I didn't buy what he was doing. I hesitated and didn't know if it was Peter because I had read things also where I was like, ah, eh, I don't know. But that right there was really good. Yeah, yeah. We have the temple imagery, you know, the, the picture that that's central, the temple of Christ's body prepared throughout six feasts over the course of the gospel and culminating in the sixth feast, which is the third Passover on the day of the preparation of the Passover, after the sixth hour, which is his indicator, tying the day, at, you know, that this ties one day to the following day when Christ was raised on the cross. And it's the, you know, it is finished, is it opens a new beginning then with the risen Christ on the first and eighth day when believers are incorporated. And it is, it, it, yeah, Peter Lightheart. John is describing Jesus as a new Moses assembling and furnishing the new tabernacle that he is. I was going to say this goes back to our earlier classes where we were talking about this is a spiritual reading of John, right? This is what we would call an apocalyptic or a spiritual. Forget about, I'm, I'm going to probably stop using the word allegorical interpretation because that has been a bit poison uh, in the modern usage of the word. But I think we could all agree on a spiritual reading, which is exactly what you're doing there. I mean, I was just reading through the story, a summary of the story of Moses. And it's amazing. If you read it in a spiritual way, you could just replace the word, you know, you can replace Jesus, Moses with Jesus and just read through the summary. It's like, you know, and then Jesus led them through, you know, the, the desert and then, you know, through the Red Sea. It's just, it's quite the, an exercise to just read a summary even of that story spiritually. And I think that that's the, that's what John's gospel that is the, the sort of hermeneutic that he wants us to, that he himself is using. And so we need to follow him in that regard and to read the scripture, his gospel, which, you know, so Origen says that the gospels are the fr first fruits of the Bible and that John is the first fruits of the gospel, you know? So it, it, he's giving us, I think, I think John's own method, he's giving us a way to read and interpret the scriptures. And he wants us to follow him in that. Which Lightheart did. Very Matt, well. do you think that uh, another good, and Paul, you could weigh in on this. I know it seemed like you talked to somebody about left brain, right brain before. But instead of allegorical, not necessarily instead of spiritual, do you think it would be accurate or helpful to call it a right brain reading of scripture, right brain, right brain uh, interpretation? So it's more creative, poetic in its conveyance of truth uh, and less analytical in the strict lingu language sense of like you would think of with your left brain. I mean, I would leave that. I'd leave that to Paul because I don't know that much about that. But another way we could say it 
really is is a Christian. This is the word that the father, you know, the origin we use. So we could say it's, you know, allegorical. I don't like that one. Again, it's been kind of poisoned in the modern period. Spiritual, maybe that's even a little too flimsy, right? Be, because uh, everyone says, oh, you know, I'm, I'm spiritual or whatever. But you really could say it's a it's a Christian reading. And what we mean by that is it's a, it's a sort of logocentrism, right? It's a logocentric sort of interpretation not only of John, but of the whole scripture. So that we're the work that we're engaged in is, and I like that, a poetic, you know, apocalyptic search for the logos that pervades the entire. I mean, this is why I love Origin so much, is because he's such a, you know, a careful reader of the scripture. So you, again, he himself says, well, you don't have to go with me in, in all my interpretations. In fact, if you have a better interpretation, let's go with that. But I, but his method, though, of saying, look at not only what Jesus says. But look at also what he doesn't say, you know, look what John includes in his gospel, but what he also leaves out, you know, instead of using the word in, maybe he uses the word through. In other words, pay attention to every single word of the Holy Scriptures because they're all divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit. And that our job as Christian readers is to discover the logos that's pervading the gospels and, and on all sorts of many levels. And, I, you know, the, I think that this is just going to be the the sort of contemplation that Christians are going to be called to for all eternity. Like Origen says, Jesus says, you know, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. So I think that we'll be contemplating these types of things in a Christian spiritual way. Uh, the word of God joins itself to the big W. Uh, I guess they're big. They're both big W, you know, words of God, right? The scriptures and Christ uh, and, and how all these things come together. It's a beautiful way to think about it, I think. It's much more exciting, than I think, than kind of a flat sort of, uh, I don't I'm never quite sure. Paul, what do you mean when you say a flat reading? What do you mean by that? I mean, I, I think I mean what Origen means when he says a, a fleshly reading, that there is a kind of literal reading. You know, first of all, that that's a poor word because nobody reads the Bible literally, even those people that we accuse of reading it literally. You understand, language is just filled with metaphor and uh, that you can't talk. You know, this is metaphors we live by. The whole the whole structure of language is metaphorical, and so that if we attach ourselves to the letter in Paul's words, I think Brian, that's the idea. You know, if you if you think of Paul's transformation of the mind, you know, I think it's really a transformation of the imagination. That Paul himself is an illustration of one who was stuck on the letter. And then he's giving us all of these pictures. He uses the word allegorical, so I don't think there's anything wrong with the word, but this figurative reading. First of all, I think that sometimes we don't trust the Bible writers to the degree that we should. The eloquence of the, the person John. John is as a subtle thinker. These things that we're discovering there, we're not reading that into it. That's just the way that John is structuring this text. But that's true of so much of Scripture. I think that we, we tend to be, you know, this was C.S. Lewis talked about the flatlanders, kind of the two-dimensional people. And I think that what we're describing is a way of reading Scripture but also a way of reading the world, that the world is going to become a place that is alive with the life of God, that it's all around us if we have eyes to see. 
St. John is writing as one who leaned upon the breast of Jesus. To me, that's the most interesting part of, of all this, right? That if G, that we believe Jesus is God, Origen says, well, when the word of the Lord came to the prophets, that's Jesus. Jesus is the word of the Lord, you know? So he says that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all these, these people, you know, the prophets, they knew. I think what we're trying to describe is a more beautiful reading than whatever we mean by a flat or uh, because we don't want to do away with the literal, right? That there's just layers. There's, there's a depth of meaning to the scripture. There is the, the whole thing is grounded and founded upon the uh, actual literal historical events. Without those, there is no spiritual reading because Christ entered into history. I think that was our day one. You know, I remember when I was a freshman in Bible college, that may have been the one time I heard them mention the name Origen in a hermeneutic class. And of course, the, the point was, oh, Origen reads allegorically. We don't do that. And that sort of characterized the rest of my Bible college and seminary education, which tells you how boring that must have been. Yeah, because we're, we're using Origen as kind of a catch-all, but you know, understand that all the Cappadocian fathers, all the early church fathers that we would look to as, you know, the, the Nicene fathers and all those, you know, St. Gregory the Theologian, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great, they, they're all reading and interpreting scripture in the way that Origen kind of laid out. Now they go through and they kind of say, well, we can do this better or we can think about this more clearly. You know, we can raise it. We can raise this thought up. But I think that we've gotten so far away from this type of reading that it just seems foreign and maybe even a little suspicious to us. I'm going to keep sitting with it. I'm going to come back. My future self is going to have a lot of answers to your questions tonight. <laughs> okay. If those seeds germinate. Yeah, yeah. Uh, well. Thanks a lot. Okay. All right. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, everyone. Thank you. Good night. Good night. Bye, everybody. Good night. Have a good evening. Bye-bye. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.